From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, navigating a successful sustainability career, the new markets for soil conservation, why Nestle and Microsoft are financing circular innovations, and Bill McDonough at 70. That's years old, not miles per hour. We're dancing through the decades this week on 350. It's February 26, 2021. This month is over so quickly. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from cold storage in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz <laughs> Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hey, Joel. How are you? How was your birthday? Oh, thank you. It was it was lovely. Took a hike and uh, saw some friends and mm -hmm. uh, respectfully and socially distanced and uh, excellent. Had some good food and that's all you can expect. Great. So. Well, guess what? It's my husband's birthday day today, so I'm wishing him a happy birthday. I'm not going to sing, but nice. Well, give him a. Uh, a virtual, well, you can give him a real hug from, from all of us here in, in Green Biz land. Um, but uh, you know what? Let's not chit-chat much. Let's just get right into the Week in Review. Well, as you know, we have been leaning into finance issues uh, in Green Biz, and we're, I'll give a, a shameless plug for Greenfin 21 coming up in April um, and a lot more stories on the site that are about financing the <laughs> financing, you know, sustainable innovations, financing the circular economy in this case. And so this this great piece that a senior editor, Elsa Wenzel, did looks at, at two companies, Nestle and Microsoft, very different companies, uh, both global, obviously, but very different ones, food, the other is tech, and how they're looking at circular innovations and uh, deploying money in those directions. So I think this is uh, a, a great object lesson for much of that we will be going forward with uh, in not just the circular economy, but in what I call financing the transition, the transition to a clean, sustainable, just economy. Um, so yeah, two different case studies in here. Uh, Nestle's at its $2 billion sustainability fund and and, um, and and how they're using some of that uh, on the packaging side and and Microsoft uh, uh, building these circular centers and, um, uh, and and they have their own innovation fund as well to uh, and, and, and just how they're using this to uh, create both in for themselves and for the world circular innovations. Mm -hmm. And it's a, as you mentioned at the top of this, it is definitely a time for financing, right? And everyone is thinking about investing in the future. Um, so like that, that topic just seems to be top of mind for everyone. But actually, the circular economy, if you think about it, um, when you think about the startups, there hasn't been as much of a, you know, like a splashy announcements around innovations for circular processes as there has been around clean energy or transportation. And that seems to be changing. So that's one of the reasons I liked this story and, and, and suggested that we chat about it this week. And what I, I appreciate about 
Nestle and Microsoft is they're doing things that are very fundamental to their business. So they're able to go out to go to the business side, the finance team that really needs to be a partner in these things and test things and show them the, the return on investment and be able to to move on from there. So, you know, in the case of Microsoft, you mentioned the the servers and how do you take a, a computer server out of commission and then what do you do with the the waste? Excuse me, I shouldn't even call it waste, right? What do you do with it once it's once it's out? Because it needs to go somewhere and um, it, it could find a very um, a very useful somewhere uh, to go to. So I think part of that, that was one of the reasons I liked this piece. And of course, Nestle is is really applying this to its packaging, which is pretty much every big consumer products company is thinking about how to turn that recyclable plastic that they're using for, for their packaging into something that actually is reused. Um, and that's, that's sort of the rub for many of the circular plans, as we know. So lots of good, really, nuggets of... Um, of tips and actionable things within this story that I think our readers will really appreciate. Yeah, that was a good self-catch on the, there is no such thing as waste in a circular economy. <laughs> um, there's just more stuff that needs to, needs to find a next use. But uh, before we move on, one other thing to, to, the, to your point about, you know, not hearing about so many innovations in circularity is that so much of it is really unsexy kinds of things like new kinds of plastic that go into packaging that replace the packaging that we, we all know. And that, that's not very sexy to have, a, you know, a innovative plastic or non-plastic or whatever the innovation is. Or frankly, what do you do with a server that's, that no longer can serve <laughs> that or that that's uh, just been outmoded somehow? And, you know, that's not something that people generally know about or care about outside of unless you're a tech geek. And so, you know, as opposed to, a, you know, a cool electric car or even a solar panel on a, on a roof or in a community where you can see it and it's, you know, you know what it's doing. So I think, you know, there is a ton of innovation going on, not, not just in, in packaging, but in business model innovation around, you know, reuse and re-commerce and so many things that we've talked about plenty of that uh, on GreenBiz and on this this podcast. But um, I think... What's interesting is just how much really is taking place behind the scenes. But, you know, speaking of unsexy things behind the scenes, there's another another story that comes out of Rocky Mountain Institute about what China can teach the U.S. about EV fast charging rollouts. Now, this is something we're going to be hearing so much more about here in the United States as the Biden administration uh, makes good on its plans to to uh, really propagate EV recharging, make them as ubiquitous as, as gas stations. And I'm sure a bunch of them will be in what we now call gas stations and some uh, some point we'll call call them something else, energy stations or whatever. Um, but what did, what did you take away from this piece? So I think it's worth noting that it's really about the public facing, you know, the ones that are not in my home or at an apartment building or at your business, but are, are well, maybe they are at a business. It could be at a retail site, but ones that are publicly available to the average human that might be driving one of these things. And what I took away from it was just the the need for the, the fast charging infrastructure, right? Um, and because people can't make trips and then sit around for two hours, <laughs> wait for their car to recharge before going somewhere else. So China is hours. really, yeah, mm -hmm. right. I don't even know. Um, but 
but China has really made sort of a focus on public infrastructure and placing them in in um, the big cities where they have uh, larger, large and growing uh, fleets of electric vehicles, and and really making a concerted effort to centralize things. Now, of course, it is a you know. It, they're mandating this, right? So it's a government level thing. And, and, and here in the United States, just to take one example, everything is very fragmented. So in California, um, you've got one policy. In, in New Jersey, you would have another policy. Um, but right now, it's pretty clear that, you know, we need a lot more investment and focus on this. So there's some, just some really, um, you know, I think things like, for example, uh, how, how do you help the utility companies? Um, Make, how do you make this more palatable for that? Um, what do you charge the person that that's um, that's going to be using this public station? If you charge them at all, how do you subsidize this? Um, how do you encourage uh, the a company, a business, for example, a retail store, to put this on their site? So um, that's, that's those are some of the things that they talk talk about. Also, there's this this sort of focus on aggregation of of stations, right? So putting a lot of them in one place so that there is there is um, obvious place to go to get this done, and um, and not just in. And this is something I'm thinking about more here for the U.S. rollout because we we do have kind of a clean slate. Where they are, right? What neighborhoods are they in? Are they just in? upperly mobile, gentrified neighborhoods, or are they in areas where there's public housing, where there's um, more uh, multifamily housing and so forth? What kinds of, of, of locations are they being deployed? So there's, there's a lot of different things happening in China that could be just an object lesson for, for the U.S. Um, and so that's why I appreciated this piece. No, totally. In fact, I was thinking that this would be one of those pieces that you you clip and send to uh, your local public utility commission because there's a pretty good blueprint here for the at least the the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about when creating a public EV infrastructure. And so, so I think this is a you know, granted we don't have a central government that China has, but still, uh, in terms of how they did it effectively, and they're now the largest market for electric vehicles. I think uh, that we could learn a thing or three from the Chinese as well. Absolutely. So should we talk about another piece? Our last piece of the week? I think and there's we a should. China connection there too. Yes, there is. And I actually didn't, I, I loved this interview that Joel, that you did with Bill McDonough, who I um, just respect and admire so much. And I, and I didn't know, I didn't know many of these things. I, frankly, I mean, I've met him more recently at, at our events and so forth, but I didn't really un- appreciate um, the depth of his background or his or where he was raised. I, d- I just had no idea. Um, and I'll uh, I'll let you get into that in a little bit more in the a moment because you 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 obviously know him very well. But you know, for example, I didn't know he he was raised in Japan at least at the beginning of his life. Um, and I lo- I loved so many of his phrases in this interview. We waging peace. I think that I just I, and I know that's probably not unique. And I know other people have said it, but I just, every time he's, it came up in this interview, I thought, oh, I love that. I love that image. That image for me was just so oh, evocative of so many different things. So tell me what inspired this interview. And um, I want, I'm, I'm definitely think we need to hear some sound bites. So set it up for us. So first of, first of all, last weekend on February 20th, Bill McDonough turned 70. And since his birthday is the day after mine, 
I, I had this on my calendar starting about last fall. You know, this is a great time to check in with Bill and specifically to take a look back and in effect to walk through his story starting at the beginning, largely. And um, Bill was kind enough to, to do that and uh, I think enjoyed it, uh, the, the process as well. And so I published the piece, a long interview, but, uh, you know, a lot of people said it was a, a great read. So I'm happy to hear that. And, um, and to your point, you know, Bill has a, a really interesting story, but also his approach to, you know, looking at the world. Um, I think, you know, the, the phrase that somebody else pointed out to him uh, was, was basically about defining the obvious for us mm -hmm. and making the obvious clear. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a gift. Um, and also framing the obvious and making it compelling things that, you know, and in some cases he didn't create them. I don't know that he created waste equals food. I'm pretty sure that came out of industrial ecology lexicon, but, but he certainly popularized it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that he, I think he may have created the, a building like a tree and, and the metaphor there and, and all that goes along with that, you know, but, but doesn't, in some ways doesn't really matter. Uh, where they came from, but he has definitely elevated and amplified these things. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of them are compelling. So, you know, he talked about uh, waging peace. That was actually something that, that his parents were done. That's why they were in Japan right after the war. They were both his mother and his father were brought in by General Douglas MacArthur. And, uh, and they were, he, I guess the father was in the army. They were both involved with, uh, with, trying to help this, this poor country that we had just fought and bombed and and trying to, you know, regain a connection to them. No uniforms, no weapons, no paperwork, no Jeeps, uh, right. just to be there and, and sort of, you know, make nice, I guess, in a way. And and so that was, so that became waging peace through commerce by design. That uh, was one of Bill's mantras. So anyway, I, I encourage you to take a look at it. There's also a bunch of... Uh, never before seen pictures of Bill going back <laughs> to great. childhood yeah. and and his college years. And it's sort of fun to see uh, this this anybody that we know now in modern day and what they look like then. There were two, uh, I want to just bring up two other phrases that really like made me as a journalist stop and say, I need to be more thoughtful about the questions I ask. And one of them was the um, distinction between end of life and end of use for a product. And I thought, oh my God, that's so obvious. Like to your point about things being obvious. Um, and that makes you say, uh, as he says, you know, what's the next use? Um, and then how do you design for that and so forth? Um, so that was like one of the, the things that really struck me. But the other one was just the discussion about carbon, right? You know, carbon is, is not bad, you know, <laughs> it, there is, Carbon is necessary for life, and 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 yet, and I know that intellectually and so forth. But but I um I just love the way he framed it, and sort of made a distinction between the sorts of carbon that we're talking about as we we, we talk about like the need for mitigation, fugitive carbon, you know that stuff that's escaped that we that we don't know what to do with. That's not good. Well, let's let's play that clip. Uh, uh, so I, I asked Bill, um, you know, at one point uh, he. In the last few years, he really started talking about carbon, and circular carbon, various types of carbon, that not all types of carbon are the same. And I asked him why, 
this was an interesting place for you. Let's hear what he had to say. Well, it's always been interesting, of course, but I felt that a lot of people were concerned about energy as I was, but I was doing solar buildings and our credit cradle work calls for 100% renewable power. And we work with clients like Walmart who have same goals and so on. So I've been involved with renewables forever, but I didn't get into the carbon per se issue and climate deep. I was deep, but not active, hyperactive, because there were so many people involved who were so articulate and so uh, engaged and knowledgeable. I wanted to take on materials because nobody else seemed to be doing it. And that had to get done too. But all of a sudden, one day it occurred to me that poor carbon, you know, carbon had become the enemy. And for a person who works with materials, this is really sad. Demonizing carbon, we are carbon. Like, this is not a good message for the children. Carbon is the enemy, you know, bad carbon. So it's because we worry about the climate and we worry about combustion and all that. And we say carbon is a problem. But, and we want to be, you know, carbon negative is a positive. What? It's confusing. This is like saying less bad, as we pointed out a, lot, a long time ago. Less is a numerical relationship. Bad is a human value. So what I'm trying to do is bring values to value. So the values are good and bad, right and wrong, moral, immoral, ethical, unethical, good and bad, Plato. And then Aristotle, his student, talked about what he called practical wisdom. And so he was looking for truth in science and number, right? Smart. Plato's looking for truth in meaning, wise. So I prefer wise buildings to smart buildings because we can go beyond statistical significance into a natural intelligence. Nice. So, but anyway, so the idea that we'd have this looking at carbon and saying it's bad, carbon is an innocent element. And it's, in fact, a magnificent thing because it's the core of life, the organic chemistry involved in carbon. So I thought, what if we redefine our way of dealing with it? And what if we have a new language for carbon that doesn't demonize us? So I wrote a paper for Nature, and it's had a wonderful effect. I'm delighted that the terms get used. And I basically said, we have living carbon, which we can celebrate and should in every which way we can. Sun shines on the earth, carbon, the atmosphere becomes photosynthetically engaged and off to the races, and we have living things, biomass. Beautiful. And then we have durable carbon, which is carbon sitting still in a limestone mountain, or it might be a beam in a building for a thousand years. Um, and, and that's what I call the technosphere. So a beam could, a wood beam can be in the technosphere because it's objects of human intention and use. And, and it's durable, it's going to be there and used. And that would include plastics that are recycled carefully. So it's durable and it's in our technical system. And, and cradle to cradle, we say biological nutrients, technical. And so it's part of the technical system. It's durable across generations. And then there's the third kind of carbon, which is fugitive. And so let's just call it for what it is. And fugitive carbon at this point in history is a toxin because a toxin in the United States certainly is defined as dose and duration. And, and so we, we have, what is a dose? What is the duration? So the dose in the atmosphere is way overloaded. And the iteration is way too long. So we've turned carbon into a toxin for the atmosphere. And so why do that? So we have to stop with the fugitive carbon. And then on the, and that's obvious to anybody, it's no, that's not news. And then there's also fugitive durable carbon, like plastics in the ocean. And I have a big passion about that. I'm very involved in that. 
We're designing all kinds of new plastics now, some of the biggest companies in the world. And, and CPGs, we're designing new packaging protocols for compostable packaging for some very famous companies. And we're also doing technical nutrition. We're in the chemical industry and parsing this out. So that's why I thought we need a new language of carbon because it's obvious. Fugitive carbon, no. Durable carbon, careful. Living carbon, celebrate, right? So, and that's what got me into the carbon. And that got read by the Minister of Energy of Saudi, for example, and said, talk to us about this. Talk to us about circular economy and so on. And so we started looking at how does carbon fit into the circular economy? It's a very special role because it's both a material and a fuel. And so the one thing that comes clear when you think about that is something that isn't in the circular economy. It's remove. The circular economy is typically about reusing everything. In the carbon, we got to get it out of the atmosphere. We have to remove it. It's a it's a really critical issue and deserves very special attention. Okay, so I need more, Joel. <laughs> I need more McDonough. What what else um, can you play from the interview? Well, there's so much because it was uh, there's so many clips I could play, but there was one that I thought was interesting that was um, took place in 1989. He's, that and I had asked him that. You know, at some point you realize that buildings were only part of, of the issue here, that materials themselves, not just building materials, but materials in general were another big opportunity that needed to be addressed. And I asked him, how did he get to that particular pivot? And he talked about uh, weaving together, as he often did, a couple of different threads that got him to where uh, really the cradle to cradle. I had two things occur simultaneously in 1989. One is that I won a competition in Germany for a daycare center. And my proposal for, was what I called a, a low entropy, right, back there again, a low entropy building. In other words, a building that is organized instead of chaotic. So, so I designed a daycare center with solar powered. I had a laundry for the parents that could be solar powered, so they could wait for the kids, purified water, grew food on the roof, I had geothermal shallow for like roots to level the temperatures. They had shutters and skylights operated by children so they could let the sun in, get the sun out, put it to bed at night, all that kind of thing. And I just thought a building is an organism operated by children. It was so much fun. But when I was there working with the teachers and the engineers in Germany, um, and the, the engineers are saying, you can't have children operating a building. And the teachers are going, why not? You know. And their point was well taken. It was like, our biggest job is find things for kids to do. So what's the problem? Like saying you get warm here, close the shutter. You know, looking for things to do. Why don't they learn about the weather? So that was fun. But while they're having that conversation, we I was looking at the children and they were eating the daycare center. They were they were eating the building and the furniture. They had their mouths on everything. Chew, chew, chew. So I was thinking, what are they eating? So I realized I had to get together with an ecotoxicologist and find out what is all the stuff we were using made out of, down to the molecule. So that's when I got on my search for ecotoxicologists, and that's what ultimately led me to Michael Browner, because Michael had been the head of Greenpeace Chemistry, worrying about exactly that kind of thing. So that's sort of got that moving. The other thing that happened, I won a competition in Warsaw for a skyscraper, right before the change of government, and, um, and, I, and I designed a building that the developer said, you win, and I said, yeah, there's one thing, you have to plant 10 square miles of trees to go with the building. 
because I calculated how much carbon would be released from the coal to build a building and how much would be needed to operate it. And it turned out about the same, it was about five square miles of trees worth of oxygen production and carbon sequestration required just that one building. And um, so I said, that's part of the building. It has 10 square miles of trees go with it. And he said, all right, we don't win, but we'll get back to you. They priced it and it was $150,000. Amazing in Poland, then 10 square miles of tree planting. So it was one tenth of the advertising budget. So it was such a strange thing to tell the developer to do. They ended up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and said, you know, will Poland plant a forest to satisfy an architect who loves clean air? Thank you, Bill. And uh, a belated happy birthday. Greetings, I'm John Davies, Vice President and Senior Analyst at GreenBiz Group. And I'm joined today by two of the authors of a new report published by the global organizational consulting firm Corn Ferry. It's entitled The Rise of the Chief Sustainability Officer. And today I'm lucky to welcome to the podcast Andrew Lowe, Senior Client Partner at Corn Ferry, and Raj Chopra, a Senior Principal at the firm. So, Andrew, in the introduction to the report, you write, sustainability leadership and the role of the chief sustainability officer has never been more important. So what did you find in your research that led you to this conclusion? Thanks, John, and um, great to be here. Look, I think for us, it became really clear almost early on and then consistently validated in subsequent sessions that sustainability leadership can unlock resilience, innovation, and, and future performance. And that leaders were finding that the role and purpose of society is, is, is it's evolving for business. Customers, investors, employees, almost any stakeholder you can think of is, is demanding that they play a more active part in environmental and societal impact. So I think off, off the basis, off the back of that, you then have the impact of the pandemic, which actually in many ways cleared the fog and, and accelerated momentum around uh, this just transition to a more regenerative and and inclusive uh, economy. So I I think for us, it it was really clear that 2020 was a tipping point and that a sustainable organisation was a business imperative. And and therefore, the role of the CSO, which, yes, it's the chief sustainability officer, but, but in actual fact, it could easily be the chief strategy or the chief transformation officer, because this is a change role. Has, has never been has never been more important. And, and if you think about sustainability as a strategy, it, it, it stems from your purpose, your, your values. And therefore, there's a human element to this that means it requires, it requires leadership and organizational mindset shifts. You know, ultimately, we find that the CSO creates the conditions for success, but it's the business that, that delivers. So, you know, culture is a pretty vital component of um, of that success. Raj, what what was the process for, for putting this report together? I know you did a lot of interviews, some research. So so what what all got packaged together to produce this? Yeah. Thanks, John, and great to be with you. It, you know, I'm a I'm an experimental psychologist by background. So any kind of activity around research is is always, you know, fascinating for me. We we have the benefit at Corn Ferry of being able to tap into this kind of huge 
treasure trove of, of data that we have on, on many leaders. So our first step really was to look at our um, talent assessment database. Uh, so we've assessed hundreds of, of leaders in the kind of sustainability sphere um, and, and look at that data at a sort of macro level. What are the key themes that are emerging around the characteristics of those leadership profiles that differentiate performance in a kind of chief sustainability officer role? So we put together a bit of a straw man of that success profile. That's the language we use around sort of defining what constitutes good in that role. Um, and so a bit, a bit of straw man. And we actually then went out to uh, individuals in that role. So, you know, chief sustainability officers um, and, and had wonderful engagement and kind of did one-to-one -one interviews with them where we were not only kind of collecting their views on uh, what it's been, you know, what it's taken for them to be successful in their role, as well as what it will take going forward in the future, taking into account all of the evolving dynamics. But also we had the opportunity to test our straw man and our data-driven hypotheses with them to kind of flex and, and tweak the success profile was, which, we, which we've kind of landed on today. I know you're a global organization, and so I'm sure your interviews were around the world. Did you find any regional differences? I mean, is the CSO role the same everywhere, or are there some subtle differences around the globe? That's a great question. I think there are subtle differences. Um, I think there's huge potential for change and growth in, in Asia. Um, and, and so there you, you, get a, you get a sense of dynamism and anticipation, but also the sheer scale of, of the challenge. I, I think Europe is probably uh, maybe further along the, the journey of this being established as a, as a paradigm, as, as, a, as, as a way of existing. And, and you know, North America, the, the same, actually. It's sort of almost organization matters more than, than, than location. But you, you are right. You make a great point. You know, we interviewed people from right across the globe to try and account for and, and capture those, those nuances and those differences. So, Raj, I want to get back to this uh, profile that you talked about, mm -hmm. your strong man. So, so what are some of the uh, attributes of a successful CSO? Sure, and maybe I can start by just providing a bit of a frame. So the way in which we look at a success profile is a, a kind of research-based model, uh, which we call the ACI model. Every, every consulting firm has a good model, doesn't it? Um, we're, we're no less. Um, so the A stands for accountability. So what are you on the hook for delivering as a uh, CSO? Um, the, the C stands for capability. So what are the skills? What are the competencies you need to do your job effectively, as well as the experiences that would have helped you to probably develop some of those competencies? And then finally, the I is identity, which are which is interesting is much more around those sort of traits, those natural personality traits and drivers that are core to sort of you know, who you are as a human being. Um, so, you know, we have various characteristics across those three dimensions. I think maybe just picking out an example that really kind of stood out to me, you know, particularly around some of the trait attributes um, drawn on our, on our sort of assessment data and really came to life through our interviews. Um, there's, a, there's a personality trait that's called, um, like some people call it a locus of control. So this idea that 
I'm the master of my own destiny. I have a sense of agency that I can really create change. And that was something that was really clear from the data, as well as when we were even just talking to many of the leaders in their role, is that, you know, this is a, a huge global challenge, uh, you know, that, that we're dealing with here. But having that strong sense of agency and internal locus of control was a really clear finding in, in, in from, from this report. The other thing that you and I have talked about, so the, yeah. the sense of agency, but then also this real egoless approach to uh, <laughs> the role. But it, it's really interesting. You need to be, you know, you're setting the conditions for success and then you need to, to let go. And, you know, it, it's interesting in some of the conversations people would would uh, would talk about that you know going too well where the organization runs away with itself and, and then it becomes more about providing a, almost a, a framework within which there is freedom. But yeah, this this sense of egoless really really prevailed, this sense of being behind the scenes, this sense of you know success is down the road. We take a long-term view. This is about the, the business going on that journey and, and the business uh, delivers the success. I think I shared with you the, the Scotty Pippen anecdote, which I thought was brilliant, where one CSO said, I, I am the Scotty Pippen of this organization. Not many people know or will remember me, but you know, no Scotty Pippen, no Bulls, no Michael Jordan, and the same applies here. <laughs> so yeah, but it, you, you, and it maybe also comes back to, this is a calling, this is intrinsically important, and it's about something bigger than the self. So I, I in the end, it didn't necessarily surprise me too much that 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 came to the fore as a as a trait. So I have a question for for both of you. We can start with Raj. But what what sort of advice do you have for aspiring CSOs? Probably a lot of them listening to this podcast today. So so you know I think um, a really clear finding from the report was you know being able to speak the language of business and being seen as credible um you know a credible business sort of enterprise leader is a term that we often use within corn ferry so you know getting a range of functional experience under your belt you know multiple functions or even kind of business leadership uh, experience i think will only add to your credibility and your um ability to drive change uh, in a really credible credible way Andrew? Yeah, I, I, I would say a couple of things. I think, you know, be, uh, be bold, you know, take risks and, and you just sort of think about that, that combination of your know, business acumen and commerciality that Raj talks about, being strategic and, and able to think long term. And then just, you know, balancing, we talk about the impatient optimist in the report, um, or one of the CSOs would always describe himself as a possibilist. And I, and I love that. It, it, it's just about, you know, seeking the, the daily progress, but, but keeping your eye on, on the medium to long term, which it sort of makes me think about one of the other questions that we sometimes do. Once this is done, we don't need a CSO, right? And that's where the geologist in me comes out. And one of the things I remember from my, my undergrad is the, the tectonic plates, nothing stands still. And so I think even if you reach the nirvana of sustainability fully embedded in your strategy and in your organization, you still need this, the, the chief sustainability officer 
with his or her eye on the medium to long term, seeing what's coming down the line, anticipating and, and helping the business prepare for that. That's great. So, Andrew, one last thing. Where do people find this report? Uh, so if you go to the Corn Ferry website, uh, you will find it there. Uh, you will find it on LinkedIn. Certainly, if you come to, to my page, you will uh, you will see it featured there. Um, and I think you'll also see it being covered by other publications, be it FT or Times. Sounds great. So I've been uh, talking with Andrew Lowe and Raj Chopra from Corn Ferry. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed Thank it. You. Regenerative agriculture, predominantly the use of cover crops, rotations, and reduced till farming practices, has been much praised by the sustainability crowd as a promising way to build soil fertility and store carbon. But these measures take investment by farmers and some way to compensate them, something that has inspired the rise of carbon marketplaces that are offering credits for those soil sequestration activities. How viable is this approach? Can corporations safely buy credits to help offset their own fugitive carbon emissions? The debate is just beginning, and GreenBiz food and carbon analyst Jim Giles has been exploring the arguments for both sides. He joins GreenBiz 350 to share some of his impressions. Hey, Jim. Hey, Eva. In the Food Weekly newsletter this week, you provide an in-depth analysis of the issues at play. Let's cut to the chase. What's the controversy? Well, I think the big controversy here is that uh, there's a couple of companies, at least, who are selling soil carbon offsets in a way that is really quite different from how the traditional offsets market operates. And I'll just highlight two key ways in which they're different. One of them is this concept of additionality. Now, this is the idea that if I buy a carbon credit, I'm paying for something that wouldn't normally have happened. I'm paying to make some activity that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or prevents the emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, and I have to know that that money uh, is going to fund something that wouldn't happen otherwise. Otherwise, why am I paying for it? That's additionality. Now, the companies or two of the companies that I wrote about, one's called Nori, one's called SIBO, say that that is a great idea, but it just doesn't apply in practice or it can't apply in practice to soil carbon if we're to scale the market for soil carbon. So they are selling carbon credits that farmers can earn, not quite with no additionality standard. There are some requirements there, but they're much lower than we've seen elsewhere in the market. Um, and that is generating, depending on where you stand, a lot of controversy, a lot of people saying that is a bad idea. Or if you're with Nori or SIBO or on their side of the argument, they're just pursuing a new and more sensible way of doing this unique kind of carbon credit. So why does that really matter? So like a corporate buyer, they just need to be more careful. I mean, just what's the danger here? I mean, there's a bunch of dangers. One is that we could find out um, down the line that a lot of these activities really were just happening anyway. And just to be clear, Nori and SIBO, so that's definitely not the case. Even though their additionality requirements are lower than some would like, they say, this money will still help farmers switch to regenerative. And they point out that that's just not really happening. You know, none of these practices, apart from maybe with the exception of reduced till, are widespread in the US. So it's clear some money needs to go to farmers. 
the risk is that we is that corporate money goes into these projects and we find out a couple of years from now, actually, you know what, regenerative agriculture was starting to happen anyway. And all that money went to farmers who would be very welcome to get it, but it really wasn't helping them to switch. And we have seen this in the case, we have seen this happen in other types of forests, uh, sorry, other types of offsets. Some recent reporting by Bloomberg, for example, revealed that some big companies, including Disney, uh, were paying for offsets developed by the Nature Conservancy, uh, which were going to forest owners to prevent deforestation. And it became clear after this reporting that there's really no chance of that deforestation happening. So that was money that the forest owners earned, but really probably could have been spent better elsewhere if the goal is to reduce carbon. Hmm. So you mentioned a couple of players, Nori and SIBO. Who are some of the other companies that we should be watching and and what is the other side saying right so you've you presented one side what's the other argument what's what should we be watching for on the other side yeah so i group these companies and it's a very rough grouping into the young turks and the establishment and on the establishment side you have a bunch of companies who take a much more traditional view not just of additionality but of another key issue that that i should get into which is verification or measurement. So how do you actually know that the soil, the carbon is stored in that soil in the first place? So on the establishment side, and this could be companies like True Terra, for example, as uh, a subsidiary of Land of Lakes that just uh, uh, sold a big chunk of offsets to Microsoft. It could be uh, a player which isn't selling credits yet, but will be doing uh, next year. That's the Ecosystem Service Market Consortium. Or a third important important player called Indigo Ag, who some people would probably say is a young Turk. They have somewhat, uh, in, they have additionality and um, measurement requirements that some people feel are a little bit too low, but they still have them as part of their protocols. So those are the, the what I would call the more establishment players, and and their take on. Um, measurement is that you have to go out and do soil samples. This is really essential. No one says that you can do it all by doing soil samples. That's way too expensive and time consuming. But they say you have to go out at the beginning of the project, generate a baseline using soil samples, and then go back probably every five years and use that additional data to calibrate the models you use to, to estimate how much soil a carbon is stored in the soil. And the establishment take is different from the Young Turks because uh, at the moment, Nori and SIBO are saying uh, soil sampling is just not worth it. It's just not accurate enough given the expense. So we're just going to go 100% with models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not accurate enough now, but we know that there's some tools coming. And gosh, it should at some point be real real time or, or at least real day, one, one hopes. Um, you know, I'm just curious with the Biden administration coming in, and obviously new agricultural policies being put in place. What do you, what role do you think um, the new administration in the US could play in helping stimulate the debate or, or at least maybe even resolve it? Yeah, this is super exciting. And I think it's the big unknown. So what we, what we can kind of guess or infer from the, you know, the folks that the administration is listening to and the things they've said is definitely supportive of these markets. So we expect the administration to support the markets in some form. Does that mean they'll uh, introduce a new sort of federally run market and put all these companies out of business? Almost certainly not. What they're more likely to do is some, do some work kind of on the infrastructure to make it easier for farmers to qualify for these markets, make it easier for them to get certified. Hopefully, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included, would like to see a lot of money go into research here so we can close some of the gaps in our knowledge of, of soil science and also develop new cheaper methods for doing the soil sampling. Because 
everyone agrees that soil sampling could be useful. The only, the only disagreement is about whether it's worth it now, given the costs. So if we could, say, develop a new handheld uh, device that you could, a farmer could just walk around the field and take soil samples with and get immediate carbon readings, and that's not science fiction. People are working on projects like that. That could be a game changer. You could have the models and you could have regular soil sampling. I think everyone would feel more confident about that. So we know big companies want to buy credits that are related to regenerative agriculture. What can they do to reduce their chances of being burned? One, one final thought here from you. So I think this applies to any form of carbon credit, and that is do your due diligence. And that doesn't mean reading the website of, well, it doesn't just mean like reading the website of the company or just kind of saying like, oh, is this offset developer working with someone with a third party registry like the Carbon Action Reserve or Vera, someone I've heard of, right? Because even, and I really don't want to like um, paint either of those organizations in a bad light because I think they do great work. But even within the establishment organizations, there's offset developers and the verifiers and the certification bodies, there's a great range of standards out there. And I think the more due diligence you can do, the better. You know, I've spoken to carbon offset buyers that um, have driven out to projects themselves and turned up unannounced and asked the folks there a bunch of questions and, and then learned stuff that made them want to walk away from those projects. Now, can everyone do that? No. But the more due diligence you can do, the better and the, the less likely you are to end up in the next Bloomberg expose. Thank you for whetting our appetite, Jim. And I encourage everyone to read the much longer analysis in his newsletter. Hope you get it. Jim, thanks for joining us on Green Biz 350. Thanks for having me on. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish one or two every day of the week. It's greenbiz.com slash newsletters is how you learn more about them. And our email, if you'd love to hear your comments, questions, and tips, it's 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. Mm-hmm.